Welcome to Green and Red, Scrappy Politics for Scrappy People, a regular podcast on radical environmental and anti-capitalist politics, brought to you by Bob Bazanko and Scott Park. Welcome to the Silky Smooth Sounds of the Green and Red Podcast. I'm your co-host, Scott Parkin, in Berkeley, California. Bob is off on holiday, but will be rejoining us soon. Uh, Today, we're going to be talking about the United Nations Climate Talks, which just happened in the United Arab Emirates. Uh, Also, uh, it's called the COP. It's called COP28. Uh, We're going to be talking about uh, how the word fossil fuels was added, but it obviously didn't doesn't go far enough. Uh, the final text actually failed to explicitly call for a phase out of fossil fuels, which was language that had been sought by over a hundred countries. Um, but we're also we'll talk about how this affects what's going on in the global south, how the climate movement has uh, been pushing for this for a long time, and uh, everything that's and and talk about what potentially could happen going forward. Uh, to, have this conversation with me today is Tina Gearhart, who is an environmental journalist who covers the UN climate change negotiations, climate change, sea level rise, with a focus on environmental justice. Her writing has been published in Grist, The Guardian, The Nation, Orion, and Sierra Magazine, and actually has two articles that came out for COP28 in The Nation and Sierra Magazine that we'll be discussing. Uh, she's the author of Sea Change, An Atlas of Islands and a Rising Ocean. Uh, and you can find more of her work at Tina Gearhart EJ on Twitter. And we'll also be sharing that information in the show notes. Tina, welcome to the Green and Red podcast. Oh, it's so great to join you today, Scott. Thanks for the invite. Yeah. Uh, and so maybe we can actually just kind of start off with uh, the what happened at the UN Climate Summit. Uh, maybe just talk a little bit about the, the significance of the agreement and you know what was important and what came out of it and what wasn't included. And we'll just go from there. Sounds great. Yeah, I think um, one of the things that came out of this year's UN climate negotiations, um, COP28, uh, is the fact that the word fossil fuels was included for the first time. Uh, Some people have touted that as historic. It is. It's never happened in the 30-year history of these UN negotiations taking place since 1992 in Rio, Rio de Janeiro. Um, other nations, rightly so, in my modest opinion, humble opinion, um, criticized the fact that there were absolutely no steps for how to phase out fossil fuels. In fact, like the very language of phasing out fossil fuels, which uh, over 140 nations were calling for, uh, was not included. Initially, it was included like it was last year, but then it was changed to a phase down and uh, eventually, you know, this this kind of language was not included. So, so those, you know, would be the upsides and the downsides. There's a lot of the UN climate negotiations are weird because uh, of what people have come to refer to as UN speak, which is that they use a lot of weird language. So, uh, just to at the beginning to say that, um, in case listeners aren't familiar, why are they called cops? It's short for to not confuse them with police. Um, it, COP stands for Conference of the Parties. Uh, party shouldn't have us thinking party like it's 1999 or something like that. 
it uh, refers to UN members, and there's almost 200. There's about 194 to 198. I can't use the word uh, nation state to refer to them because they include things like the EU, which is not a nation, or Palestine is also included, uh, but also not a nation. So that's that's the weird lingo there. And we've had 28 of them to date. One of the key passages of the deal, speaking of weird UN speak, <laughs> Uh, says transitioning away from fossil fuels and energy systems in mm -hmm. a just, orderly, and equitable manner, accelerating action in this critical decade so as to achieve net zero by 2050 in keeping with the science. Uh, and you know, as we're sort of kind of like diving into this a little bit, what what exactly do they mean by that? I mean, that does definitely like it's like I would call it lawyer speak or or policy speak. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that they they are talking about is um, this this just an orderly transition. That's important. This kind of language um, refers to ensuring equity between nations. Um, that also sounds like lawyer speak. So to unpack that and to translate, it basically um, a lot of the UN climate negotiations and people criticize them all the time because they haven't achieved more. And ask me questions like, why is it, you know, should we even go? Should we even have them? Is is a question that came up this year. Um, I would say first before unpacking that statement, that I always argue that it's important to keep the UN climate negotiations going. Are there all sorts of reasons to criticize them? Yeah, I'm sure we'll do that over the course of our conversation. Um it is the only time in the entire year, it's the only multilateral forum through which countries from around the world gather with a focus on addressing the climate crisis. So, so that full stop is really important. It's also the only time in the year because they take place over two weeks. It's a protracted, it's not like a one-off like Earth Day, it's a protracted meeting. It's the only time in the year where we have that kind of a focus on the climate crisis. So there's all sorts of, you know, from print to television to radio, there's all sorts of media coverage that we could question whether or not that attention will be given to the climate crisis if this didn't take place. And then there's the fact that when you have almost 200 members gather, that the nations that are most responsible, the global north, um, the colonizers, and then you know the the entities that grew out of out of that early European colonization, by which I mean specifically. Australia, uh, Canada, and the US, um, these nations are historically responsible for the climate crisis, disproportionately impacting nations in the global south. The nations in the global south, the frontline communities that are most impacted, radically outnumber the nations that are responsible in this forum. And I'm not so naive as to think that capitalism doesn't exist and that you know we're like living in a in a in an equitable society or that things are taking place these negotiations are taking place um in a level playing field but just if you look at that numbers game and every single nation weighs in it's a consensus decision making process right every single nation gets to weigh in on whatever's being um negotiated that numbers game has an effect, even if it's far too slow, even if there's no legally binding agreement coming out, and even if I think it's totally annoying and unfair and unjust that nations that are most impacted are not the ones that created the climate crisis and have to do all of this work 
which is political, logistical, legal, economic, and emotional, um, all this, these different kinds of labor to advocate for their countries getting what they need. So to come back to the sentence, that's, you know, that would that would be sort of my opening statement on the UN climate negotiations and why they're, they're, they're useful and not so useful. But to come back to your statement, one of the things that these negotiations were aiming for is to ensure, um, you know, this kind of just transition, but they're not demanding a phase out of fossil fuels, which there's a group called the um, non uh proliferation fossil, the fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty is what it's called. And it has more and more nations signing on every single year. I think they have over a dozen nations now. They also have um, sub-national entities like, yeah, states, um, cities can sign on. Um, over a thousand uh, Nobel laureates have signed on. So there's a growing push for the phase out of fossil fuels. I, you know, I've been asked to predict what the issues are going to be for next year. COP29 um, on different radio shows are, are also for the pieces that you mentioned that I wrote coming out of COP28. And I fully expect two issues are going to keep being the center of attention, a phase out of fossil fuels. And I think that's going to be relentless until we get it, <laughs> firstly. And secondly, getting funding from the global north to the global south to deal with the impacts of the climate crisis. Loss, loss and damages. That was discussed a lot in uh, Egypt last year, correct? Yeah, loss and damage. So last year, the big news coming out of COP27 in Egypt is that for the first time in the history of, so you see this kind of first time in the history of coming up right now after 30 years, a lot in these negotiations. So last year, for the first time in the history of the negotiations, and the history is important there because this had been argued for since the very first uh, climate summit in Rio in 1992, uh, loss and damage was included in the agreement. What is loss and damage? Well, it asks its global nations in the global now, uh, south uh, frontline communities asking for nations in the global north to recognize their historic responsibility in creating the climate crisis mm -hmm. by being emitters and the kinds of things that they that are lost, meaning irrevocably lost, or that are damaged, meaning, as the word suggests, that they've been damaged, um, but not irrevocably. And that is, um, there's, there's compensation that's being demanded for that. Really great that it was included last year, but all of the details about the loss and damage facility, as it was called mm -hmm. in language, it's like, mm -hmm. what is that facility? Um, all of the, the details and nuts and bolts of, um, is this going to be multilateral? Is it going to work through the World Bank, like through multilateral banks? Is it going to work through nation states? Like, how is this system going to work? Is it going to be in the form of loans? Is it going to be in the form of outright monies that are allocated, but that are not loans? All of that was uh kick down the road to be figured out at another time. So you're seeing already in the in the short time that you and I've been in conversation, a couple of patterns emerging. Historic when language is included, loss and damage last year, fossil fuels this year, super problematic when the details are left to be figured out. Right. And is there, I mean, are they having side conferences, talks about just to talk about loss and damages, for example, are they, are they, ha are they meeting on this? Are they having you know, trying to decide what the process will be to send, you know, send funds to, you know, global South countries, or is it just like 
they're just kicking the can down the road and not mm -hmm. doing anything to move this process along. That's a it's a great question. So the annual UN climate negotiations are not the only um, meeting that takes place through the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, the UNFCCC that organizes these annual talks. Um, they have interstitial in-between meetings that take place like in June in Bonn, there's an annual meeting. Mm -hmm. And then there are different working groups that also meet. Um, there's different groups, entities um, of the United Nations climate negotiations, like the Africa group, this is all UN speak, least developed countries, um, small island developing states. They have different meetings. I know that the small island developing nations, for example, are going to be meeting in May in the Caribbean. So they meet, but the work related to loss and damage specifically was being discussed as something that should take place in tandem with the World Bank and IMF meetings this spring. And there's been a whole movement that I wrote about last year for the nation around loss and damage in the banking system, where I thought Mia Motley was doing really great work talking about the whole economic structure um, that we have coming out of the 1944 Bretton Woods meeting mm -hmm. gave us the neoliberal architecture that we have today. So for listeners that might not be familiar, um, nations met in 1944 in Bretton Woods, New Hampshire, and they came up with and gave us things um, that you know exist to the present day, even if some of them have morphed, like the World Bank, the IMF, the World Trade Organization. Um, so the, world, the new world order. Yeah, the new world order, basically. <laughs> right. So Mia Motley, um, together with the financial advisor, um, Perso, I'm, I'm blanking on his first name right now, were basically saying, look, a lot of nations in the global south, and she's speaking from her experience um, being prime minister of Barbados, are hit with this double whammy. We have, on the one hand, the financial debt that comes from a combination of colonialism, because whether listeners know it or not, there's a lot of colonized nations like, you know, Haiti is the classic example, you know, had the revolution. And then because of that, to get independence, had to pay France back for lost income that France was no longer going to be able to get from Haiti because it was now independent. I mean, that's just such a crazy story right there. Yeah. But because of debt incurred through colonialism or imperialism, a lot of nations in the global South, and again, she's speaking from the Caribbean's perspective, are faced, when they have a climate catastrophe, they're faced with this, this what I refer to as, as the double whammy of, do we pay back that debt? that in contemporary terms might be World Bank IMF loans, or do we do we deal with whatever just hit us with regard to the climate crisis, say a hurricane coming through and its damage? And she was calling for a radical restructuring of, um, of the entire loan system so that it took into account these inequities. I thought that was great. I wrote about it for The Nation a year ago. And just a week ago, a uh, radio host from uh, from LA, who I who I sometimes you know, where I sometimes appear to talk about these climate issues, sent me uh, the link to an article written by a colleague whose name I forget at UCLA, but I could quickly find it while we're talking. Um, and 
Uh, he wrote a very, he's also from the Caribbean by heritage. He wrote a very critical article of Mia Motley's policies. Mm -hmm. And she alerted me to the fact that this article was making the rounds among black leftists wanted to know what I thought about it, if I was aware of it. Mm -hmm. So I think your listeners should also be aware of, you know, the fact that there's criticism of Mia Motley's policies, maybe to dig deeper. Right. And where this is this is playing out where we're seeing this we're seeing inequity we're seeing countries which are have already been exploited for centuries by you know other you know mm -hmm. by global north countries and but now they're also been, being hit with the climate crisis uh you know is there you know it, it it's I, I was you know there's a, a lot in your piece about uh the small island states and you know people's movements and so mm -hmm. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, the impact that these, it seems like these voices have a, a, are, are being heard a lot more, at least with mm -hmm, it. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's based because I'm also in progressive circles, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. maybe not in the mainstream, but I'm wondering if you mm -hmm. could talk a little bit about how some of these frontline communities and some of these mm -hmm. movements have actually been affecting, you know, the possible restructuring of some of these systems. Thank you so much for, for that question, Scott. And I'll just cycle back to what I was uh, mentioning previously. Um, the the host of the show, it's KPFK's um, uh, Margaret Prescott, who who reached mm -hmm. out to me, and she sent me an article that is by Keston Perry, P-E-R-R-Y, and it's the Mirage of Mia Motley's Progressive Politics, published in the Black Agenda Report, in case your listeners, viewers want to check that out. Right. Um, for more on what I was mentioning. I think the question that you're asking about the centering of frontline communities who are working for, and it really needs to be uh, underscored, the nexus of environmental, racial, and social justice, like the nexus of those issues, um, are being centered more by the media. I don't think it's it's the communities uh, that, that we're located in or the geographic area that we're located in the Bay Area alone. I think there has been a decided shift. It has come about as a result, I think in the US of you know the racial reckoning in the wake of, of George Floyd and people at venues that I publish for, The Nation, The Progressive, et cetera, recognizing that they need to think about environmental justice in ways that in work to ensure uh, racial and social justice as well, right? And so what does that mean on the global stage? Um, you know, that means making sure that you really center the voices of frontline communities. I think looking at what happens at the UN climate negotiations, it would be hard not to do that because as a journalist who's been covering them since 2009, I can share with your listeners and viewers what, what, what one experiences there as a journalist. If you have almost 200 countries standing up and weighing in one by one, and then as part of these clusters that I've been mentioning, what you come away from these two weeks of talks, and, and when they weigh in, they often reference what is going on in their home countries. So last year, it was a third of um, Pakistan was flooded, you know, $3 billion of damage, about 3,000 people died, half of whom were children. Most of those effects in Pakistan are go ongoing to the present day, even though it's over a year later. And they're not in the front lines of the papers. Last year, it was the drought in the Horn of Africa, um, those effects are ongoing, even if they're not on the front page of the news. So when you go for two weeks and you listen to nations weigh in one by one and acknowledge 
because it's the respectful thing to do, the situation in their home countries before they weigh in, what you come away from those negotiations with is a visceral sense of what's going on around the world in frontline communities. And then you look at like the best papers. Um, I'll just single out The Guardian because they've been doing great coverage of the climate crisis for a very long time and encouraging us to use language like the climate crisis or the climate emergency. Um, they'll focus on the US-China standoff. And I think the issue, which, which is totally important to addressing the, the crisis, but it doesn't center the frontline community's voices. And I think they have been really tenacious. Last year's uh, loss and damage um, facility being included in the agreement, I really attribute to the tenacious work of I mean, she'd hate being singled out this way because it's not oh, their, you know, the way of viewing the world and it's too egocentric or individualized. But Tina Stege from the Marshall Islands, lead comment envoy from the Marshall Islands, tiny island nation if you measure it, you know, using the land mass, but ginormous if you include all of its maritime territories. Small population of like 53,000 people, you know, your favorite and, and, and mine, Kissinger once quipped famously, you know, when they were moving people from Bikini Atoll, which yes, is where we get the word bikini from, in order for the U.S. to detonate bombs out there. He said, there's only 50,000 people out there. Who gives a damn? Right. So this is the kind of um, callous disregard that sparsely populated areas get nations in the Pacific. And yet, I think it was largely, you know, Tina Stege's um, tenacious organizing uh, that she was leading and a huge part of that got this across the finish line. So frontline communities are, are really important to this conversation and they are being centered more and more. Hey folks, you're listening to the Green and Red podcast where we interview guests like Noam Chomsky and Andrew Basevich. We also have shows on cultural icons like John Cash and Woody Guthrie and the Godfather movies. And we talk to scores of organizers and activists who tell us what is happening in the streets and in the back country. So check us out. Yeah, and I'm Bob Azenko. And as always, uh, Scott and I want to thank you for listening, for watching, for supporting us. Uh, and we hope we continue to do that. The first thing we ask is that you share this, let people know that we're out there and we're doing something that I think is different. We have a good niche, I think, in left podcasts. And uh, we talk to really cool people and, uh, about really important issues. Um, follow us on uh, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Um, go to our webpage, which is on uh, in the screen. And, uh, um, you know, if you really like us and if you have a, a, a little uh, extra change around um, jingles or folds. Uh, uh, you can help us out by going to our website at greenandredpodcast.org and hitting that support button and make a one-time donation. Or you can check us out at patreon.com backslash greenredpodcast and become a patron. Uh, we'll see you again real soon. You know, I follow a lot of what would, you know, progressive left socialist, although I don't completely identify or agree with everything going on there. But there's there's been this uptick in conversation about the climate crisis within those circles. And some of that's popular media. It's like we're talking about like Jacobin and mm -hmm. and and a lot of big podcasts. But there there's been a, a, a conversation there about how there needs to be a more of a focus on workers and the working class in the US in order mm -hmm. to uh you know to deal with the climate 
crisis, but they often leave out a conversation about frontline communities, even in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And I'm just wondering if you have any any thoughts on on that. It's it's a, it's an interesting, and also I would say those groups, some of those outlets also do a lot of promotion of what I would call false solutions. Like they're good with nuclear as long as it's owned by the government. They're good with like with carbon capture as long as it's like being promoted by the government. And I'm, mm-hmm. I'm just wondering if you have any any thoughts on that. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for that question. I really appreciate it. I mean, look like the analysis there in, in the examples um, you just laid out of the approach to be focused on the state as part of the solution um, and uh, working together with and ensuring um, the interests, if one's addressing the climate crisis of workers, is important in that, you know, to go that route first. Um, in that if you're going to look to have a widespread um, you know, solution rolled out, if you turn the government in that direction and away from the fossil fuels, that's obviously going to have a really positive effect. Um, I could have a long conversation about what I think about nuclears. Being first gen in the U.S., growing up in a country, uh, Germany, that was staunchly anti-nuclear and experiencing at close hands um, what the risks were when Chernobyl exploded um, in the in the Ukraine like you know that's a whole other issue like is is nuclear a solution right now or not um carbon capture storage uh I'll I'll be more explicit about in that it's totally not a solution and it is being touted by the government um and it's not a solution, and it was part of what was um, referred to not explicitly, <laughs> but in mealy-mouthed UN language in the agreement that came out of COP28. Um, carbon capture storage is basically capturing carbon or emissions and sequestering them, storing them underground. The reason it doesn't work is that it's prohibitively expensive. It has not been scaled up in order to uh, address the emissions. And so if anyone suggests carbon capture storage, given that it's expensive and hasn't been rolled out, and we're talking about nations in the global south that don't have the budget to roll it out, um, and that this is the decade when we have to reduce emissions the most. So by 2030, we have to reduce emissions 43%. They have to peak in 2025. I'm looking at my clock and it's almost New Year's and I'm like, wow, that's a year away that emissions have to peak, right? So like, never mind carbon capture storage, the solution is to reduce fossil fuels. And that's where the lack of steps in COP28 is a really big problem. But to bring the discussion, um, oh, and I haven't lost track of of where we started with this because there's also plenty more that I want to say from the ground up. But I just want to say that bringing the discussion from the global to the national, Biden is the president, as I'm sure you well know, that has signed the most uh, oil and gas, you know, leases um, or just uh, increase the production of oil and gas is what I should say, the most of any president. Including Trump and only in, within the Trump. last three years. Yes. I mean, this is. So there is so much, if we look at um, COP28 and we're like, what's next? I could say some things as I already did for COP29, but really the what's next from the UN climate negotiations, which don't lead to a legally binding treaty, 
is that they send a signal as to what we should do at home, meaning mm -hmm. in our nations, in our states, in our communities, not viewed, you know, in terms of a borders nation state or, or a, a state type uh, type way. And there's plenty of room, I think liquefied natural gas and natural gas, which really needs to, to be renamed um, as, a, as a fossil gas or, you know, as, as, as uh, something that isn't natural, which sounds, you know, so good. Um, I think that's really a, a front line that we need to work on. And it comes back to your question at the outset that I think that whole framework that you mentioned at the outset is one framework. Um, I think a really helpful framework for thinking about the solutions is also listening to and engaging the needs of frontline communities in terms of what they want us to push back against and what they want us to work towards. Now, sometimes that might include workers, um, but if we're talking indigenous communities, if we're talking, um, you know, black and brown communities, I'm, you know, waking up in, in the Bay Area today as, as you are to the news that yesterday investigators descended upon the uh, oil refinery in the East Bay for the incredible like toxic explosion that they have unleashed. So that's terrific, but how about shutting, working to shut down that refinery? Um, how about working to shut down LNG and its expansion under President Biden? There've been uh, kayaktivists as they're called, so activists who are on kayaks um, up the coast, I know, who have been working to shut down LNG. Germany, a lot of our LNG is going to uh, liquefied natural gas, is going from the U.S. to Germany because Germany is trying to wean itself due to the Russia-Ukraine war off of gas that it was previously getting from Russia. So anything we in this country can do to push back against the expansion of LNG that's taking place under Biden is really important work. We can do that nationally, we can do that state, we can do that in our communities. And it it definitely helps the global, but also the local. Yeah, and I and well, and I'm from the Gulf Coast. I'm from from Texas, lived in Houston for a long time. And I mm -hmm. always like to point out that a lot of the build out of LNG, liquefied natural gas export facilities is happening Texas, Louisiana, other parts of the Gulf South. Like, I think mm -hmm. they're trying to build three of them in the Rio Grande Valley alone. Mm -hmm. And it's just, it's, and, and it kind of, it kind of goes uh, to one of my other questions sort of related to false solutions is that they talk about transitional fuels in, in some of the agreement, which is, they're talking about natural gas, which is just like mm -hmm. mostly just a success of propaganda, as far as I'm concerned to call it natural mm -hmm. gas. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, and then also uh, the other phrase around the false solutions, which you, you lifted up was around unabated coal, which mm -hmm. I thought was a very interesting phrasing of that. And that's also related to carbon capture. But, you know, we're, we're yeah. the, the, there's one of the critiques, I think, of this agreement has been a lot of loopholes. And I see both, both of those promoting that fault, those false solutions as a, as, as loopholes. Yeah, absolutely. I think, yeah, the, the unabated Boy, like sensing to the dictionary, abated means to like somehow rein in. So using, you know, reducing unabated is is a reference to coal, which can, which should be reduced if it does isn't abated, which means using carbon capture storage, which is a really complicated way of saying if we have carbon capture storage, does that make that 
continued use of that fossil fuel okay? I mean, that there's like five or six, seven, eight words there that take so much to unpack that like the Washington Post had one of its environmental journalists write an entire article about the word abated, unabated. Um, and then I think, yeah, the, the you know, the use of, of natural gas in, in that sense is, is yeah, I think that's spot on. It's the, the kayaktivists were protesting up in the Pacific Northwest, and then it was definitely the LNG terminals that are being set up in Port Arthur, Texas area in Texas, right. in the Gulf Coast that you were mentioning. They have also had a lot of activist pushback, and I think that needs to continue. Um, we need to look for it. We need to organize against it. Um, and we just need to stop this expansion before it happens and call it out for what it is. It's polluting fossil fuels. <laughs> and then my other question from what you said, said before is how we're supposed to be headed towards peak emissions by 2025. Then another point that you raise, and I actually think in both articles, is about how the fossil fuel sector is moving ahead unabated, and they have all sorts of plans for extraction projects and export projects, and uh, you know, there, it seems like it's they, they. I mean, I have some questions about the COP being in a petro state and some of the forces that were at play there, but I, I'm just wondering if you could comment a little bit on like. The, it seems like oil and gas in any way is is moving ahead moving full steam ahead in this in this moment yeah it definitely is and there's a number of uh different ways to read that and i was just thinking as um you were mentioning natural gas previously to not forget to mention the reason natural gas is so problematic is because the form of emissions that it emits is methane which is five times more potent than CO2 emissions, right? So to refer to it as natural is really problematic because it's actually even more potent than other forms of uh, fossil fuels, which are differently potent. But there is a bit of a bonanza moment. Somebody, um, Barron's published an article, a number of people were tracking this. Within 24 hours of COP28 agreement being signed, um, and I wrote about this in one of the two articles, there was an unprecedented number of new agreements that were signed. So it was kind of, you know, an incredible bonanza. You've mentioned in a previous um, episode that the head of COP28, Sultan al-Jaber, um, the president of COP28, um, is also head of uh, ADNOC, which is uh, the UAE's uh, state oil company. The presence of fossil fuel lobbyists at this year's COP was unprecedented. So this is the largest COP ever. Over 100,000 people registered, about 70,000 people attended, and it had the largest um, number of fossil fuel lobbyists ever. Uh, kick, kick Big Polluters Out is an organization that was tracking how many uh, fossil fuel lobbyists were there. And according to them, there was 2,500 roughly um, fossil fuel lobbyists that were in attendance. And that number, um, the only other numbers that were in that range were uh, possible future host uh, Brazil had a larger number, around 4,000 um, in attendance. And then uh, current host, uh, the UAE had had you know roughly that number in attendance. So they were the only ones that had that number. But I think I think, look, like the read on why is there such a bonanza right now could be read as an indication of the fact that this is the last hurrah of the fossil fuel industry, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, 
here in California today, the news about things coming up in 2024 are the fact that, you know, fossil fuel powered um, leaf blowers, for example, are not going to be possible anymore. I'm reading, um, you know, a novel by a uh, friend, Chris Carlson, right now that, you know, is, is jokingly referring to um, When Shells Crumble is the title of it, that's looking, you know, at a future where there are no more uh, gas-powered cars, for example. And that's right. actually something that our state, California, post, if I remember correctly, 2035, and I know other states like New York have also implemented. So we're seeing the death knells um, of the fossil fuel industry. It's just, it just needs to happen more quickly. <laughs> yeah, I, I, that also made me think of this, the right wing decrying the war against gas stoves. Uh, where yes, that's the other yes. In, in California, I don't. I think for new houses, they they have to be electric, if I'm not mistaken. I yeah, think. in California, for new construction, they have to um, be electric. Um, that's absolutely right. Um, yeah, that that gets you know. Wow, your rights are really being taken away there. Um, I've seen interesting articles that have acknowledged the ways that both homeowners and crucially renters can actually shift towards electrifying their homes, right? But again, I think, I think you know, individual actions are great, but let's look at the real big elephants in the room. And, you know, you've addressed these on some of your previous programs, but they really bear underscoring. The United States military is the biggest consumer and user of fossil fuels. And so if we demilitarized, that would actually be really helpful for the planet in addition to obviously dealing with some of the wars that that are protracted and ongoing right now and and just um you know unconsciously killing uh thousands of people around the world as as we speak um the largest companies in terms of the use of fossil fuels the majority of them are are u.s companies and so if we took action, whether that's legal action, whether that's direct action, working through nonprofits, through, you know, legislators, um, to push back on um, that kind of a usage, that also has a really radical effect. And I think that's really important as well. Would, would you say that the, like the two big points that you sort of brought up at the beginning, where we're seeing a lot more conversation about loss and damage, and we're seeing a lot more conversation about fossil fuels and hopefully future phase outs of fossil fuels. Could you say a little bit about the impact? I mean, all of those, I I have a very holistic view of like how we, you know, take on this issue and everything you just named are ways to do it. Lawsuits, legislation, you know, direct action, protest, whatever, targeting corporations and even like secondary and tertiary corporations. But I'm wondering if you could actually comment on the power of those people-powered movements and those direct action movements to put pressure to move the needle on this? Or is that why we're seeing this sort of shift at the highest levels of you know, world leadership, like for example? And and why we're also seeing the, the oil sector and petro states like UAE sort of like freaking out a little bit, trying to figure out what they can do to do their own version of mitigation against us, for example. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, that's a I like that way of referring to it. I mean, I think I, I appreciate the question. I think absolutely that's called. I mean, in, at the at the UN, we often and I'm sure this gets used in other fora. I share your holistic view of all of the tools in the toolbox. Um, firstly, I should say, and then 
At UN, um, we often talk about the inside-outside strategy, which is the fact that uh, people who are outside, who are activists, who don't have the same kind of access to the UN climate negotiations, bring a certain amount of pressure onto the talks, which if those concerns are shared with the climate envoys that are inside, which given that nations from the global South frontline communities definitely do share the concerns, do want to see fossil fuels phased out. Um, that kind of inside outside strategy definitely has, um, has an impact on how the negotiations work. It adds pressure to the voices of the negotiators, the climate envoys that are pushing for similar things. The journalists who are moving between those spaces, um, they don't have access to all of the negotiating spaces, but they have, you know, access to the the big briefings that take place inside, as well as the press briefings. But then they also see the activism outside. So when journalists weave all of that together, they can see those kinds of synergies taking place between the activism that's happening outside and the positions of climate envoys um, on the inside, as well as of certain NGOs that are on the inside. And I think I think there's absolutely, um, it's a chorus in some ways, right? There's definitely refrains that are picked up and, and carried from one venue to another. And it's really important, um, I think, to recognize that. This is one of the reasons why, you know, Direct action may not have a direct impact that is palpable, but it's always about those, you know, it's the we are winning versus we won, right? It's always about those indirect impacts that are so important to be aware of because um, it is about moving the needle. As you put it, it's about that gradual processual. And that requires keeping the attention on, keeping the focus on, keeping the heat on, keeping the activism on. Yeah, which also results in, you know, most extreme, like different types of backlash, right? Mm -hmm. Whether it's escalated charges or where they're mm -hmm. passing anti-pipeline protest bills in North Dakota or lawsuits or, you know, in, in the case of particularly people in the global South, but this also happened in Atlanta around Cop City, the actual murder of, of environmental defenders and land defenders. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, look, as one of the signs of the last hurrah of the fossil fuel industry, speaking about parting like it's 1999, you can read this bonanza of this, you know, this ra rapid explosion, rapid explosion of fossil fuel um, production. But you can also read the incredible, the mitigation using seizing these venues and trying to turn the message on them that you were uh, mentioning a moment ago but also the amount of, of backlash, the number of journalists, um, you know, as you mentioned in, in the episode just prior to, the number of journalists globally that have been, uh, environmental journalists that have been killed or the number of environmental activists that have been killed um, are disproportionately in the global South, in Mexico, in the Philippines, in Colombia. Um, and, that's not just a, a, a global issue, but it's also taking place within the U.S. Um, you mentioned uh, Cop City, which is obviously something where activists are really aware of the nexus among the environmental degradation, right? The the, the mass logging. Um, there's a, a colleague who is here at um, UC Berkeley whose aunt lives. He's from Atlanta, and his aunt lives right in that area that is being logged right now. But there's a 
um, and he's he's African American. There's a nexus between environmental degradation or the demand for environmental justice and racial and social justice, and I think that's something that um, that movements are really aware of in environmental justice movements, um, and I think that's really important to keep keep the focus on. But I do think that the repression is also increasing. Um, and I'll add to that that ecofascism is something that I'm increasingly concerned about. Um, I mean, Naomi Klein and Doppelganger has these has a couple of threads running through it about the people who are fasting and doing their clean juices, clean bodies, you know, well-maintained bodies, and how there's something that's fascistic about all of that and maintaining the clean gene pool and the clean blood and yada, yada. Um, and there's a way that it runs together with uh, ecofascism that one can date back to the Nazis, but, it, you know, that that rears its head right now in very quirky ways as well. And I would, you know, I just would encourage your listeners, viewers to to be mindful of that as well. Yeah, there's a there's a great podcast out of the UK called uh, 12 Steps for What, I believe, which actually mm -hmm. does a lot of covering of the far right. And they've actually done a lot. They actually even published a book on ecofascism, which mm -hmm. I definitely encourage people to check that out. Mm -hmm. um, I, uh, I'm kind of, we're kind of getting towards the end of our, our time. And I, I, uh, I probably have like two more questions. Mm -hmm. um, one is, you know, it seems what we've been talking about here is a, is a shift in uh, pop and at least language that they're using and hopefully, um, uh, you know, progress that they're making definitely since 1992 in Rio. Um, and I'm, I'm just wondering uh, you know, where you think we can expect to go? Are we, are we, we're obviously, we've talked about a lot of things here. We, we can talk about backlash of the state and the oil sector or whatever, but I'm, I'm just wondering where you see some of this going in the next couple of years. I think, I think nations that are frontline communities, I know this from my work with and um, on engaging the struggles of Pacific Islanders uh, with regard to sea level rise. You mentioned my book, Sea Change. Mm -hmm which really deals with sea level rise and its impact on island communities. So I know from having interviewed um, people specifically in the Marshall Islands that to some extent they have stopped expecting, hoping, wishing, demanding that the global north actually take action because they've been doing it for 30 years and nothing yeah. is happening. And so, and that's a lot of what uh, Sea Change is about. They are also to avoid narratives of, of white saviorism. They are already taking actions to address the climate crisis that we in the global North have created. And I, so I, I expect to see that kind of work in frontline communities continue. But I think, I fully expect that the, uh, you know, the, the combination of environmental, racial, social justice movements in the US will continue to work in an intersectional way and that it will also continue to work to reduce the expansion of the fossil fuel industry here in the U.S. because, because we are the source of the problem, right? Mm -hmm. That's the kind of um, thing that I can see happening. And almost regardless of where, you know, people focus on electoral politics so much, almost regardless of what happens next year with regard to electoral politics, because of what we were saying previously about Biden, right? Um, so it doesn't really matter if Trump or if Biden is in office, 
with regard to specifically the expansion of fossil fuels. Um, And so that that work I expect to see unabated. It's uh, unabated. Ha ha ha. Um, what what I think is I found um, myself using that word a lot more after I read your article. <laughs> that's yeah. That's um, hopefully we don't get too much um, too much language from the UN permeating our our speak. Otherwise, yeah, we'll need translators. <laughs> but I would say that this focus on fossil fuels and on um, on the climate, you know, on on the 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 payments, right, um, are going to continue to be the focus at the at the national international level. Nationally, the pushback against fossil fuels, I think, is going to continue. Um, and then my last question, and just also this is because this is also one of the uh, an issue area we co- cover a lot, which is around foreign policy and issues of of war and conflict. And you know, I saw images from COP twenty eight of uh, people in solidarity with Palestinians and what's going on in Gaza. Uh, do you? I'm wondering if you could actually talk a little bit about overlap that you may be picking up on between like some climate issues and issues, particularly around Gaza and Israel, but anything around war and peace, because we we also talk about actually the war in Ukraine a lot on the show. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, to me, it also seems like there have been some difficulty in connecting dots between being a, a movement in international solidarity with other people in the world and climate and other things going on domestically in the U.S., Right. Yeah. Thank you for that. I mean, one thing that I'll say that strikes me and that I've seen a lot of uh, different people comment on is the fact that we in the U.S. seem to have no end of funds for all sorts of wars, because this is, you know, a war that the U.S. and U.S. taxpayers are obviously paying for, uh, referring specifically to, well, to both, but specifically to to more recently the um Israeli attack on Palestine. I have a hard time using the word war there because that seems to indicate two nation states that are using their militaries against one another. And this is um, not that situation. And so um, attack on or something that gets at the inequity always seems more appropriate there. Um, So I find it somewhat um, confusing to be really ridiculously diplomatic and mealy mouth about it, that we have funds for these kinds of ventures when there is not enough funding for all sorts of other things, whether those are environment or the nexus of environmental, racial, social justice. And that's part of the cop city argument as well, right? That in Atlanta, not to confuse our cops, um, is why do we have all the money to expand this kind of an entity when the funds could be used, are needed for things X, Y, and Z? And it brings us kind of full circle back to what we were talking about previously, which is that if we were to rein in military budgets, and first and foremost, the US military budget, it would go such a long way to dealing with the climate crisis, but also with regard to environmental racial uh, justice. I mean, look, I have a full on paragraph in my book about all of the different islands that are used globally uh, for the U.S. military to park itself around, you know, the world, and I kept taking it out, and then I kept putting it in. I took it out because I was like, "This it doesn't." There's no argument. It's just a list, and any good editor will say a list is not an argument. But I left it in because I'm not sure everyone recognizes how much our military impacts not just in terms of the places we attack, but the places where we park ourselves. Um, and the places we colonize in order to have a home for uh, U.S. military infrastructure 
so that we're closer to whatever's going on in that area. And that that has all sorts of impacts. I mean, I teach, you know, at the University of Hawaii and islands, real estate and food and energy costs are, you know, this is true for Hawaii, this is true for Puerto Rico, Marshall Islands, blah, blah, blah. Um, their costs are all driven up by the presence of the U.S. military. So this is, you know, and then obviously it's a racial and social justice concern for the local communities that are there. So I think the war is, is tied. Um, these wars, these attacks are, are tied in, in these different kinds of ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we just actually did an interview with Brandon Lee, who was a mm-hmm. activist in the Philippines who had been working with indigenous communities, land defenders on environmental issues and had been, there was no, he had basically, he's basically been, he had basically been shot by the Philippine government military uh, and left a quadriplegic and it's, you know, it's all funded by the U.S. He he often says that the bullets lodged in his body are U.S. paid for by the U.S. tax dollar payers, paid for by the tax U.S. taxpayers. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's yeah. I listen. It's a terrible story, and I think we should think about that line of relationship. We should absolutely think about it. So another way of putting that is, if that's not what we want to see happen then what action are we taking in order to avert that, in order to turn that, right? And I think yeah. that's that's absolutely an important question to ask because these are related. Yep, absolutely. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wrap it there because I actually think that's a good point to, to end it on. Um, folks, we've been talking with Tina Gearhart, who is an environmental justice who covers the UN climate change negotiations, climate change or the climate crisis, sea level rise, with a focus on environmental justice, you can find her writing in Grist, The Nation, The Guardian, Orion, and Sierra Magazine. And then she's also the author of Sea Change, An Atlas of Islands in a Rising Ocean. Uh, and f- for folks who enjoy this show, please check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you're watching this on YouTube, hit the subscribe button. If you're listening to us on one of the many audio platforms that we're on, please give us a rate and review. And if you really like us, particularly since it's the end of the year, uh, become a patron at patreon.com backslash podcast, or go to our website and make a one-time donation by hitting that support button. And then we have these nifty, we have some nifty swag. We have some nifty uh, green and red swag. This hat I'm wearing is one of them. If you want to donate $25, which includes shipping, uh, we will send you a hat. Just email us at greenredpodcast at gmail.com. And uh, Tina, it's been great talking to you. Thank you for joining me today. Um, It's been great talking to you, Scott. Thanks. Yep. And everyone else, go out and misbehave. And we'll talk to you again soon.